0: So now we're continuing in this short summer series in a selection of psalms. Praise the King. And we come to Psalm 2. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2. This sermon is titled, The Sovereign King. Hear now the eternal living word of God. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the word of the Lord. So in Joseph Stalin came to power in the Soviet Union back in the 1920s. At that time, the Russian Orthodox Church remained a powerful force in the country, despite the best efforts of his predecessor, Vladimir Lenin, for over a decade trying to eliminate all traces of religion. And so Stalin knew, as every dictator knows, that the the church threatened his absolute sovereignty because of their belief in the absolute sovereignty of God. And so he launched what was called the Godless Five-Year Plan. And in this plan, Stalin empowered an anti-religion organization called the League of Militant Atheists. And he did this against the church. Churches were closed and stripped of their property, as well as any educational or welfare activities. It went beyond simply their worship activities. Leaders of the church were imprisoned, sometimes executed, on the grounds of being anti-revolution. And the empty churches and synagogues were turned into museums of atheism. And this rebellion against God and his church wasn't only in Stalin's regime. There's a long list of dictators. uh, Pol Pot, Mao, Lenin, King Jong Un, Nikolai, Ceausescu, many, many others. They did everything they could to overthrow God from his throne and replace him as a sovereign ruler. But this rebellion against God isn't limited to tyrannical dictators. Last week, in studying Psalm 1, we learned of the two different paths in life. The path of the righteous, which is living your life according to the ways that God has laid out in his word. And the path of the wicked, which is living your life according to the philosophies of the world and ignoring God's teachings for your life. And God's sovereignty is undermined anytime someone lives according to the path of the wicked. The rebellion against God takes place in every country in the world because the philosophy, philosophy of living in every culture is not according to the word of God. Now, it may manifest itself in different ways, but people all over the world are set against God in their ways and they're in rebellion against Him. It, it's not only in these communist dictatorships or, or countries that persecute Christians, but in our culture. It can be seen in people simply ignoring God and doing life their own way. Going to school, raising their children, paying taxes, entertaining themselves, without even considering what the Bible has to say for their lives or, or what, what it means to follow Jesus. This is the rebellion that we mostly see in our society. Not to mention the increasingly wicked undermining of God's way of life in our culture. But any rebellion against God is completely in vain. God is the creator of all things. And he sovereignly reigns over his creation. His kingship is universal. He is the creator of all things. Sovereignly rules over all his creation. And this morning in Psalm 2, we'll see three elements of God's universal kingship. First, God's enemy's rebellion. Second, God's sovereign reign. And third, God's gracious salvation. Now, Psalm 2 is the logical conclusion from Psalm 1. It's the continuation of Psalm 1. If the way of the wicked is the normal course and philosophy of the world then most people in the world are on that path. Most people you come into contact with don't delight in the teachings of God and his word. They don't live their lives according to the way God has laid out in the Bible. And they don't care to. Most people want nothing to do with God and what he has to say about living. And if most people are doing this, we're talking about whole nations of peoples are against God and his way of living. Whole nations are enemies of God's. Psalm 2 begins with this understanding. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so it begins with a rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Now, this is actually quoted, this verse here is quoted in Acts chapter 4. And they mention that the psalmist is David. It also affirms the divine inspiration of Scripture, and specifically this psalm, because it says that David says this by the Holy Spirit. And so David, in the first verse, is asking, why are people doing this? And the translation obscures something. The the verb translated as plot here actually also is translated as meditate. It's the same word that we studied in Psalm 1 last week that said the blessed man meditates on God's law at day and night. And so it's the same word there. It's making a connection with Psalm 1. Saying the nations, the peoples that are on the wicked path, why do they do this? Why do they meditate on vanity?" The things that people think about, choose to spend their time thinking about, spend their lives chasing after, are worthless. And they don't simply meditate on worthless things, they make a hopeless attack on God and His anointed. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. The leaders of the nations of the people, it says, set themselves and advise each other in going against the Lord. And he's saying, why in the world would they do this? Why would anyone go against God and his anointed king? Do they really think they can defeat God? And so the first element of God's universal kingship, as we see, is that God's enemies rebel against him. This goes for the leaders of nations and anyone trying to gain independence from God. To live their life without Him is a rebellion against Him. And this is a worthless desire. You can't overthrow God. The kings of nations who reject God and His anointed king want to reign for themselves in a way that seems right in their own eyes. Now, the Hebrew word translated as anointed is Mashiach. We say it in English, Messiah. In the initial contact, it would have meant David himself, but this psalm is clearly what we call messianic, which means it points us forward to God's coming anointed one, God's coming Messiah. Whereas we usually say in the church, it points us forward to the Christ, which is just a Greek word for Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah, Jesus, God's anointed one. And the apostles clearly saw the connection between Psalm 2 and Jesus. This psalm is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament at least nine times. And so Psalm 2 specifically points us forward to Jesus, who will be attacked by the nations. The rulers and the kings of the people who oppose God, they also attack and oppose Jesus, God's Christ, God's anointed one. And when these first two uh, Verses are quoted in Acts chapter 4. It comes right after Peter and John were arrested and then released by the chief priests and the elders at the temple. And they returned home to their friends and they were praying. And in their prayer, they quoted Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they see the anointed here is Jesus Because not long before this, not long before they said this prayer, Jesus was crucified. Jesus, the holy servant, God's anointed, was killed by the people and their leaders. By Herod and Pontius Pilate, by the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And people still to this day set themselves against God and his Messiah, his Christ, Jesus. People of every nation, every culture, reject God. They reject Jesus. But they don't only reject him, they're against him. The culture always seems to decay in a direction that is hostile towards Christ and towards Christians. But it shouldn't be so in his church. Our path is to be the way of the righteous. To love and obediently follow Christ. To be a light in the world. Now verse 3 tells us the attitude of those who are attacking the Lord and his anointed. They're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The bonds and the cords that the rebels want to burst and cast away are God's Torah, God's teaching and instruction that we learned, away, learned about last week. God's way of life. They want to do away with it. Now, I don't know of anyone that doesn't see this happening in our culture. Really, the whole of Western society, the culture of the world, is set against God and is trying to do, undo every single teaching and instruction for living that God has given us. And unfortunately, it can creep into the church. The culture of the world does influence and infiltrate the church. And this happens when the church allows teachers of the word to play loosely with the authority of the Bible. The Bible is the authoritative word of God, and that's where it begins. And so once churches start allowing the culture of the world to dictate morality or any teaching on how to live life, then the church has set itself on a path of the wicked. And unfortunately, the downward spiral of sin that comes with that. But the attacks and the plans of the nations against God, against his Messiah, Jesus Christ is not the end of the story. Starting in verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The strategies and plans to overthrow God, those who are on the wicked path, is laughable to the Lord. The idea that anyone would even consider overthrowing God is absurd. And your sins, all of them, are a rebellion against God. All sin is an attempt to dethrone God. And we all sin. We, you and I do this repeatedly because the human heart is sinful. God, as God revealed through the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful and above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our whole nature is affected by sin. But the only reason anyone would not live with a fear of the Lord in their life is because we haven't experienced his wrath. Although the idea of anyone rebelling against God is laughable, the consequence is not. It says in verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And so as the nations conspire against God and his Christ, whether this be an anti God, anti religion, communist, Anti-Christian Western regimes are simply the individual rebellious sinner who's trying to rebel God by ignoring his righteous rule over their life. God's wrath and fury is what is deserved by everyone. Not only do the evil rulers of anti-God nations deserve his wrath, but you and I deserve his wrath. And this is really the starting place to understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ understanding that you're a sinner who has rebelled against God, that has earned nothing from him but his wrath and his fury. And this is where you must begin to understand the unbelievable grace and mercy that God has shown you in Jesus Christ. So notice God's response in verse 6 isn't an announcement of a, a divine act of punishment on rebellious sinners. It says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, My holy hill. In the face of his enemies conspiring and rebelling against him, God announces the establishment of his king on Zion, his holy hill. Now the reference to Zion as the holy hill of the Lord brings to mind the temple being built on Mount Zion. But this psalm we know was written by David. And the temple was built on Mount Zion after David died. But this is a divinely inspired passage, and it's pointing to a king greater than David. As we read, starting in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so here we can see this is referring to the king of the line of David that was promised to him in our responsive reading from 2 Samuel 7. The promise to David about his descendant, it said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This promised king who will rule on the throne of David forever. And so God's response to the rebellion of his enemies is to announce his Messiah, the king of the line of David, who will be the son of God that will reign forever. And so the second element of God's universal kingship that we see here is God's sovereign reign. God's reign is over all things. And his reign is so secure that the idea of someone overthrowing him is laughable. But there are consequences to the rebellion of sin. God is holy and just and righteous, and he must punish sin and rebellion. And so his response is to announce the forthcoming king who will fulfill God's reign over all of creation. The Apostle Paul, in his sermon, which is recorded in Acts 13, also quotes Psalm 2. And he's saying that this son of God who will come and reign on the throne of David is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. The Jesus that was crucified by the rebellious rulers. And he says how he, why he did this. He did so for the forgiveness of sins. And God raised him from the dead. And this is the message of salvation in the gospel. Jesus, the king who continues God's reign forever. Jesus is the son of David, the son of God who will rule the universe. Now, it may seem, Why? Does it seem like Jesus is not in control? If he's reigning now, why are things the way they are? And because God is long patient, he's long suffering and patient. He, he gives people this chance to repent. But there will be a time when his Messiah, his King, comes and completes his role. God says to this anointed King, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus, as we know, was given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, the the nations, the ends of the earth are his. They are his to judge. He conquers his and our enemies. But God gives people a chance to repent. Even though the sovereign reign of God is given to his son, Jesus Christ, and he has the ability to judge them, he's giving this chance to respond and god so god's response to the rebellion sinners isn't immediate judgment it isn't immediately to extinguish us all in a wrathful fury god's plan isn't to only condemn and punish sinners and wipe out all of creation his plan is to redeem creation and th- he's doing this through the redemption of sinners and this is all to be do- done by his anointed king Jesus the Christ. In verse 9, is again quoted or alluded to a few times in the book of Revelation. And it's telling us that Christ will break his enemies with a rod of iron upon his return. Because upon his return, anyone that remains an enemy of God and his Christ will be defeated. But God's response is an immediate defeat. In Psalm 2, God responds by establishing his reign through his chosen king, Jesus the Christ. And so what does it mean now, at this moment, prior to the return of Christ for those who've rebelled against God? How should they respond to God establishing his Christ, his anointed one? We see this starting in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The conclusion of this psalm, and really the conclusion of the whole introduction of the Psalter, combining Psalms 1 and 2, is a call for God's rebellious enemies to change their ways. It's a call to the leaders of the godless nations or godless leaders of any nation. It's a call to anyone that is on the path of the wicked. A call to anyone that has chosen to live their life according to the ways of the world, the ways of Satan, instead of the way of the Lord that he's revealed in his word. It's a call to change paths, to repent and turn to God, leaving behind the life of living for yourself, to live according to the word of God, to live a life pleasing to God, The end of this psalm is a warning sign on the path of the wicked. Danger ahead. You're going the wrong way. The way of the world leads to death. It may feel right. Your sinful nature may be attracted to this. But the world and its sinful, self-promoting philosophies of life ultimately lead to death. See, it says, verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned o rulers of the earth be wise think about what you're doing there are consequences to the way you're living your life sometimes these consequences come in this life but there are eternal consequences as well this is a warning serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling the warning is to serve the lord with fear and rejoice in this with trembling and embed it in this warning is a gracious gift. This is the third element of God's universal kingship that we see here. God's gracious salvation. God doesn't owe anyone salvation. He's not required to allow repentance. He could have extinguished all of humanity at any time he chooses. And he would be completely justified in doing this. But God is not only righteous, holy, and just. He's also loving Merciful and gracious. He has given away to salvation. Although we've rebelled against him. Although you're born sinners. You're born his enemies. He loves you enough to graciously offer salvation in his son. Repentance. This means returning return, from God to God from your sin. And doing so with grief and hatred of your sin. Constantly working towards a new obedience in your life. Repentance means leaving behind your life of living for yourself and serving the Lord with fear. And in doing this, you can rejoice in your trembling. Repentance means submitting to God's Son and His chosen King. As verse 12 begins, kiss the Son. Instead of rebelling against God and His Christ, as everyone who is on the path of the wicked does, you can kiss Him. That is, lovingly embrace His Son, Jesus Christ, submitting to Him as King, over your life. You've either embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, as the only way to salvation, or you've rejected him, remaining God's enemies. These are the two options. The life, the path of the righteous, is found only in Jesus Christ. Or the life of the wicked, which is every other way of life. You could submit to God and Jesus Christ, living your life in service of him, in fear of the Lord, out of love. You you do so out of love and a response to the salvation that you can find only in Jesus Christ. Or you can go it alone in judgment. It says, kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so David concludes the final statement of this psalm, tying it to the blessed man on the righteous path from Psalm 1. To be blessed is to take refuge in the Son. The only way anyone finds themselves among the congregation of the righteous is through Jesus Christ. Jesus, God's King, who came to bring salvation to his people. He came to bring salvation to those who find refuge in him, those who choose to follow him with their lives. He came to bring salvation to those who follow the path of salvation that is laid out in the Bible. And that's the difference between every other religion and the gospel. In every other religion, obedience is an effort to earn salvation, to earn God's favor. But in the gospel, obedience is a response to your salvation that has already been accomplished in the cross of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller summarized it this way. He said, other religions say, I obey, therefore I am accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And so Jesus, in his role of king, the Westminster Shorter Catechism tells us, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus conquered the rulers and the authorities, Satan and his demons, and put them to open shame. He conquered sin and death by taking your sin and the sins of all his people onto himself and nailing them to the cross. Your sin and rejecting and rebelling against God isn't trivial. It requires a substitute. But God provided that substitute in the sacrifice of his anointed one, of his son, the king, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the king who didn't need to kill anyone with a great army and triumph. Jesus triumphed in his own death and resurrection. And he did everything necessary to deliver you from the power of death. And so through faith in him, you have forgiveness for all of your sins. For any time you've chosen to rebel against God and in him you have eternal life. So in studying these Psalms this summer, really in studying in any any part of God's word, you may feel the need to repent because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing. And you and I, do need to repent and continue to repent daily. We need to continue to conform to the way of life that God has revealed in his word, continue to conform to the way of life of Jesus, God's son, our king, the king of all things. But that daily repentance, that daily effort of the believer to continually work towards a new obedience is for the sake of pleasing God. It's a response to the loving sacrifice of his son, to the gift of salvation you've been given. Your daily repentance and turning to the word of God, striving to live out the way of life according to God's instruction, doesn't earn you salvation. It's a response of the salvation that Jesus has earned on your behalf. It's a response of someone who has been saved by grace through faith because the work of Jesus Christ dying for you on the cross, in your place, is sufficient for your salvation. He is the king of the universe that willingly submit himself to evil, corrupt men to be humiliated, to be mocked, to be beaten, and ultimately killed as a sacrifice in your place, taking on the punishment you deserve in the brutal death on the cross. And he did so to, so that you could be seen with his righteousness before God, That you would not be condemned in the final judgment, but would be openly acknowledged and acquitted. And as a response, out of love for all that God has done for you in Christ, you continually turn to Him in obedience. Because Jesus is not only the King of your life, the King of your heart, He's the King of the whole church, the King of the world, the King of the whole cosmos, everything seen and unseen. And when He returns, he will complete what he started. He will bring to its full culmination the kingdom of God over which he reigns. And so you can live in anticipation of the day when Christ will return and set the whole of creation free from its bondage. And the new creation will be perfectly realized. And Jesus, all his and our enemies of Satan, evil, sin, and even death, will finally and ultimately be defeated. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. He is the King of kings. Therefore, continue to work in your life and in your heart, putting off sin, putting on the new self, living according to God's word and rejecting the world's way of sin. Not so you can earn salvation. Your salvation has already been secured in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus but you do so so that you can please God, that you can please Jesus Christ with all your life because he's given you more than you can even imagine. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord, for all you have done on our behalf. We know that we've rebelled against you and have been wicked. But you love us so much. You brought us into the light. You brought us into the life of loving and serving your son. We praise you for what you have done in Jesus. Not only our salvation that he has accomplished, but also the new life he has given us. That we can live on the path of the righteous. That we can know that your word is given to us in the Bible. And we can set ourselves on the path that is laid out in your word. Continue to work in our hearts and minds, Lord, that we may live for you and your kingdom, that we may live lives that glorify Jesus in all that we do and say and all that we are. We pray in his glorious name. Amen.